Well, I remember exactly where I was. March 30th, 1981. You know, there's these moments in the history of our country that we experience as a culture, and we remember exactly where we were. I think everybody my age and older remembers where they were on March 30th, 1981, because that was the day that President Ronald Reagan was shot outside a Washington, D.C. hotel. We lived in a little house in Paris, Tennessee, and I was watching the news on a black and white television. Yes, that's right, young people. We, when we were your age, we had black and white television sets. And I remember watching uh, the story of President Reagan being shot, and we really didn't know what was going on. Uh, he was pushed into uh, the car, taken to the hospital, got out, walked into the, the hospital under his own accord, which is pretty impressive for a 70-year-old man with a bullet in his chest and a lung deflated. And he walked into the hospital, and he maintained his sense of humor. He, he said to his wife, Nancy, I forgot to duck. Um, he said to the two surgeons who were about to operate on him, I hope you're Republicans. Um, he maintained his sense of humor, but really nobody else did. And in fact, uh, there was a newscast that came on where then Secretary of State Alexander Haig walked up kind of breathlessly, if you'll remember this, to the mic. And um, somebody said, who's in charge here? Who's in control? And he said, well, he tried to give him a little civics lesson. And he said, there's the president, then there's the vice president. And then he erroneously actually said, then there's the Secretary of State. And actually, technically, it's President, Vice President, Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem of the Senate, and then Secretary of State. And so he then, trying to calm everybody's fear, because everybody's worried, you know, the president shot, we didn't know how, if he was dead, alive, how he was doing, uh, that kind of thing. And I think people were having flashbacks, those who were alive back in, from 1963 and JFK. And so they were kind of, who's in control? And so Alexander Hay kind of said to the mic, he said, I'm in control here at the White House. Because he was trying to calm everybody's fear, but he was saying that he was, even though legally he really actually wasn't. Because when it feels like nobody's in control, fear can set in. All manner of sort of weird thinking comes when we think that nobody is in charge, nobody's in control. We kind of feel like we're in a free fall. And part of the problem of where we are today in our culture is that it feels like nobody's in control. Or at least nobody really knows who's in control. Like when it comes to the pandemic, like who's making the decisions here? We had, you know, Thanksgiving, and I talked to a number of people uh, after Thanksgiving, like, how was your Thanksgiving? And they were like, well, you know, it was different. That was most what most people said it was different this year. A couple people I talked to said it was the best. My family couldn't come in. It was awesome. Uh, I, I'm not going to say who that was, okay? Um, but, but it was weird. It was different. And, and, and people are concerned, is Christmas going to be different? You know, we got restaurants that are closed. Are they going to be open? You know, uh, people who have kids in school have to do non-traditional uh, instruction, NTI, and that's weird. And, and I'm a group of a, a part of a group of pastors who are uh, concerned about mental health issues that are coming up. And we want that to be taken into consideration when people think about what we're going to do responding to the pandemic. But the question is, who's making the decisions? Is it the president? Is it the vice president? Is it our governor? I mean, is it the CDC? Are they the authority? Is it the World Health Organization? I mean, sometimes we do what the CDC says and sometimes we don't. I mean, who's, the, who's making the decisions? Who's in charge here? Who's in control here? I mean, when it comes to the government, you know, we have this contested election. We, we, is Donald Trump in charge? Is Joe Biden going to be in charge? Is it the Supreme Court? Who, who's in control here? And see, when you don't have an answer to that question, you tend to get uneasy and you have this unstable feeling and fear can sneak in the back door. 
And when fear sneaks in the back door, that will lead you to be touchy and irritable. And here's what will happen. You'll become easily angered, easily offended. And that's what we see in our world right now. People getting easily angered, easily offended. And Satan has a field day with that. And if you let your mind run away with you, it will spiral out of control. And you'll begin to believe that nobody's in charge, nobody's in control. Maybe even the devil's in charge. And that will lead you to a dark place. So I want to take just a few minutes this morning to talk to you about this one question Who's in control here? That's the question. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5, because if you're going to ask the question, who's in control, a good place to go is God's Word, the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, and I'm going to give you my big idea, right? I'm going to tip my hand right from the beginning. The big idea of this chapter is this, Jesus holds the future in his hand. This is the big idea of Revelation chapter 5, which means we have a reason for hope. But here's the deal. I can't just say Jesus holds the future in his hand and that give you hope. You have to see it for yourself. So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit today will translate the words I'm saying to you specifically so that you will actually see something you didn't see before, that you will actually see that Jesus holds the future in his hand. And you get that picture burned into your head when you begin to question it this afternoon. Because this is the key to hope. This is the key to maintaining your hope. A lot of people are losing hope right now. Even Christians are are beginning to feel their hope seep away. But I want to remind you, the church was built for this. Not just New Life Church, the church universal. We, you have been chosen for such, you have been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. I mean, we often think of the, the, the generation that went through the Great Depression and then World War II, we call them the greatest generation, and, and maybe they were, okay? I know at least they were tougher than us. I know that for a fact, okay? But, but, but we call them the greatest generation, but how many of you know God's not sitting on his throne going, oh, no, I wish there was more of the greatest generation still alive? No, he picked us for this moment. We're the ones alive today. They were faithful in their day, but now is our day to be faithful. And we were chosen for this. You were picked for this. You are not here by accident. You're not watching this live stream by accident. You're not alive on planet Earth by accident. You're not in the kingdom on accident. You were brought for such a time as this. So let's look at the text in Revelation 5. And to kind of enter into the text, I need to give you a little bit of the context. The context is the early church. And in the early church, they had no political power. Okay, we got to get that straight right from the beginning. When, When Revelation 5 is written, they have zero political power. They were experiencing persecution. You think our political leaders are bad? They had some bad political leaders, okay? They, it, it, just after Jesus, you know, dies and rises from the dead in the 30s A.D., there was, a, there was an emperor in 37 to 41 A.D. whose name was Caligula, and uh, he was really messed up he, um, in a number of ways. But just to kind of give you a picture, he tried to name Incitatus to the Roman Senate. Incitatus was his horse, just to kind of give you a picture of how crazy they were. Later, there was an emperor named Nero, uh, and in the 60s, he burned part of Rome and then blamed the Christians, and and, and, and tradition has it that both Peter and Paul were martyred under that, and that was the first, what's called the first great persecution. By the time you get to the 90s AD, which is when the book of Revelation was probably written, in 95 AD, there's another emperor by the name of Domitian. And Domitian, uh, under his rule, Christians experienced the second great 
persecution where he murdered thousands of Christians. Um, Domitian was notorious for his cruelty. He invented ways to torture people. I'm not even going to tell you because I'm sure there's probably some kids watching. I'm not going to tell you what he did. Um, He doubled the soldiers' pay, which sounds good, except for the fact when you realize the reason he doubled their pay is because he was going to ask them to do a lot of really bad things. He paid for that, by the way. He enlarged the Colosseum. And and he not only paid for his soldiers, but he paid for the Colosseum by confiscating the wealth of successful people. So if you are a wealthy man or woman, uh, you are not safe from the charge of treason because if he accused you of treason, he could just take all your wealth that you earned. And he, he ordered that he should be called Lord and God. He worshiped the Roman goddess Minerva. He died, get this now, and there's some debate here on historically, but he died, get this, when his wife found out she, he, he was going to kill her, she had him assassinated before she, he could kill her. Here's my point. Domitian was not a good guy, okay? He's evil. He's bad, all right? He, he's a terrible human being, and it appeared to everybody when the book of Revelation was written that Domitian was in charge. Evil is in charge. Evil ruled, and in the middle of all of that, John has a vision. We call it the apocalypse or the book of Revelation. And Revelation 1 verse 10 says this. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So here, get the picture now. Domitian appears to be in charge. Evil's in charge. This guy's a whack job. He's killing all these Christians. And on that day, John said, I got in the spirit. Because however evil your situation is, you can transcend it by being in the spirit. When, when, when you're in the spirit, see, he got in the spirit and he saw something that nobody else could see. When you get in the spirit, you see things. That maybe other people don't see. You, when you get in the spirit, you will hear things. You will, you will, you will know things because you're not being controlled by, by the evil that's in society. You're being controlled by the spirit. And part of our problem today is even as Christians, sometimes we're not responding to this world in the spirit. We're responding in the flesh. And so my prayer and my hope for this message, my goal for this message is more than information. It's that you get in the spirit. And from that position, you see things like John saw here, John begins to see in, in the spirit, and he sees weird things. He sees shocking creatures. He sees dragons, right? He sees, this is why one of my favorite books, because I, I kind of like dragons. Um, uh, he sees angels. He, sees, he hears beautiful music, transcendent worship. There's gut-riching violence. There's confusing pain. I mean, the book of Revelation would make a Marvel comic look tame. It would make X-Men look like an Amish bake sale, okay? This, like, like, this is intense, And the bottom line of the whole book of Revelation is this. Domitian is not in charge. Jesus is Lord. Domitian's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. History is in his hands. So let's look at it. Revelation 5. And this chapter is made up of four scenes. And each scene begins with the words, and I saw. And if God will allow us to see this morning, I think if we get a glimpse of what he, if we see what John saw, I think we'll respond like John responded, which was not fear. It was with worship. So scene number one is a throne and a scroll. Chapter five begins where chapter four ended, and chapter four has focused our attention on the throne of God and the one who sits on the throne. God the Father is the focus. So chapter five, verse one, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now stop right there. What is the scroll? Well, if you were to read on, 
into chapter 6, you would discover that the scroll contains the detailed plans and purposes of God for subduing the enemies of Christ and bringing his kingdom reign on the earth. Okay? So the scroll represents the fulfillment of history. It's the victory of God. And the picture is God's supreme power over history and the future. William Barclay calls it the book of destiny. Moffat calls it the, the scroll of doom. And you're like, okay, well, which is it, the book of destiny or the scroll of doom? Well, it depends on whose side you're on. If you're on God's side, it's the book of destiny. If you're against God, it's a scroll of doom, right? And the idea is that however strong evil becomes, no matter how tough the Domitians of this world look, they may growl like a mean dog on a chain, but it's all show. No matter how fierce the satanic forces of evil assail the people of God on earth, history still rests in the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven on the throne. All right, I kind of like that. I like being in the spirit. This is kind of fun, right? Until John realizes we have a problem. And you say, wait, there's a problem in heaven? There is a problem on this day. And that leads us to scene number two. First scene was a a scroll and a throne. The second scene is a triumphant lion. Verse two, and I saw, that shows you it's a different scene. And I saw a mighty angel. Now, stop right there just for a second. This is the season of greeting cards. Um, and, and a lot of times on Christmas cards that get sent out, you'll see pictures of angels. And they're like this eight-pound, six-ounce baby angel in a diaper playing a harp, you know, with these little wings that are flapping in these cute little cheekies. Never once in the Bible is an angel ever portrayed like that. I just want to be very clear about this. Never one. There's never an example in the Bible when an angel encounters a person and the person says, look at that cheekies. You're so fluffy. Nobody ever says that about an angel ever in the Bible. In fact, most of the time, the angel has to say, I'm going to pick you up off the ground because you're terrified. Fear not. Right? God sent me. You know, that's usually what's happening. And so let's get the picture here. This is a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now get the picture here. God the Father is on the throne. And he's got the scroll of history, the scroll of destiny, the book of destiny in his hand. And all we need is somebody, just one person who's worthy to take it from the Father and open it. That's it. Because the breaking of the seals is going to unleash God's kingdom reign on the earth. That's what's going to happen. So all we need is one person who's worthy. So this angel, this strong, this mighty angel goes on a universal search. And here's what he discovers. There's no angel. There's no created being, there's no human being, there's no spirit, there's no creature, there's nobody who is worthy. Nobody. No one is worthy, not even one. It reminds me of, for those of you who are Marvel fans, in the Avengers, you know, there's Thor, and Thor's got his hammer, and I can't even remember the name of the hammer. I'm sure somebody watching, I'm sure... You know, Nathaniel remembers the name of the hammer. Uh, Whatever the name of Thor's hammer is, you know, the only person who can pick it up is the one who's worthy. 
right? So Thor can pick it up, and they're always joking about nobody else can pick it up. You know, Iron Man tries to pick it up, everybody tries. Until you get to the end game. When Thanos is beating up Thor, right, and he's just pummeling Thor. He's about, it seems like he's about to kill him, and all of a sudden Thanos gets hit in the head with a hammer. And the hammer comes flying back, and the camera follows the hammer back, and it comes back to Captain America's hand. And, he, and, and you discover Captain America is worthy. And Thor goes, I knew it. And then he gets punched in the face. You remember that scene? Okay. Well, switch back from that scene to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, there is no Captain America. Nobody is worthy. Nobody's worthy. And so John begins to weep. I mean, this futile search crushes his heart. Emotionally, he is dissolved. He, he, the future of the world seems too bleak to face. And some of you may be today where John was on, on that day. You look at our nation, you look at our world, you look at your family, and there seems to be no one. No one's worthy. No one can stand in the gap. No one can lead. No, nobody seems to be in charge. There's nobody. And all of that may lead you to be like John here, and you begin to weep. I mean, because he's wondering, is God's will going to be done? In fact, one commentator, Robert Thomas, writes this, the most plausible reason for his sobbing is his fear that the events contained in the revelatory scroll would remain unfulfilled, thus thwarting the purposes of God. So John's weeping. And his weeping reflects the devastation that God's future kingdom on earth appears to be indefinitely postponed because nobody's worthy. Nobody's worthy to take the scroll from the Father. Keith Krell invites us to kind of be John in this moment, and here's what he writes. Did this mean that the wrongs of earth would not be dealt with? Does this mean that the righteous will never be vindicated and the wicked will go unpunished? John understood that if God's purposes fail, then all of life is meaningless. If no one can open the scroll, none of God's purposes will come to pass. The sad truth is this. Without Christ, there is only weeping. And that's true in our world too. Without Christ, there is no hope. And at just the moment, when it seems that all hope is lost, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And in that verse, you begin to feel the energy turn. You begin to feel the story. It's, like it's like the hammer comes flying out of Captain America's hand, right? It, it's like the energy begins to turn. And John turns, and he's expecting to see a lion king, right? Because the elder said, look, the triumphant lion, the lion has overcome. And he turns, and when he turns to look, and he's expecting to see this lion king, he sees instead, scene three, a slain lamb standing. Look at verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 7. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. At the moment of greatest despair, Jesus... The Lamb of God 
steps up with authority and takes the scroll. And I can imagine, and it is kind of this picture of my, I can imagine a grin coming over the father's face as he says, yes, son, you are worthy. And he takes it. Now look, this, the lamb here is a picture that goes throughout the entire Bible. I mean, all the way back in Genesis, Genesis 22, remember Abraham has taken Isaac. He's been told to sacrifice him up on the mountain. And Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide the lamb. And later, when everything, you know how that story turns out. When it turns out, he gets to the end and he says, on the mountain, it will be provided. And that happened to be the very exact same mountain where the temple was later built. Where the Dome of the Rock stands today. That's exactly where that was. So it's a picture pointing us to Jesus. And then, and then when you get to Exodus 12, there's the Passover lamb where the, the, the um, Israelites being delivered from Egypt had to slaughter a Passover lamb and put it on the doorpost and they sheltered under the blood of the lamb and the death angel passed over. And we find out later that was actually a picture of, of Jesus. In Isaiah 53 verse 7, it says prophetically of Jesus, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that lamb picture goes all the way through. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So beginning to end in the Bible, the lamb is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ who was slain. But remember in this picture, he ain't dead. He's risen and he's alive. That, and that's why the, John says he was standing at the throne. Verse 8. And when he had taken it, so the, the, the lamb gets, takes the scroll... The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, just side note here on this, this whole idea. Throughout the book of Revelation, the prayers of the saints over the centuries are burning coals on the altar of God, at the throne of God in heaven. And later, we don't have time, we could read on through chapter 8. Uh, an angel is actually going to take a censer. He's going to scoop up these burning coals, which are the prayers of the saints, and he's going to hurl them down onto the earth, and the, and the kingdom reign of God, the victory of God is going to come. Okay? Now, here, they're just there. It's, it's incense in the censers that are your prayers and mine. Just side note, no prayers ever wasted. Not one prayer that you've ever prayed for this country, not one prayer you've ever prayed for your spouse or your children, not one of them is wasted. They are burning at the altar of God in this moment. And here they were here, these bowls of incense, verse 9, and they sang a new song. You are, here's their song. You are, I'm not going to sing, don't worry. Uh, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is their song. 
Their song is, here's the deal, you're worthy. They're, they're just singing, man, you are worthy because you purchased people. Like you and I, guys, we're, we're, we're part of this song. We're like the objects of this song. We, we've been purchased. Jesus traded his blood for us, but not just so that we go to heaven when we die, so that we're part of a kingdom today. And he says, they're, they're priests. And then he, and he says this, they're going to reign they're going to reign on the earth. This is part of the song. The song is the gospel. It, it's the story of creation, fall, new creation, redemption. And this is the song that you and I are invited to sing, to sing this song. Now, those last two verses I read are just pregnant with theological meaning. We could preach a whole sermon on them, but let me just point out two things very quickly, very shortly about these last two verses. First, Get the picture here. These elders and these creatures around the throne, which is these bizarre creatures around the throne, they have seen the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who existed before any creation, themselves included. They have seen him in perfect love and fellowship with the Father, okay? He was enjoying the bliss of heaven, the perfections of heaven, the beauty of heaven, the comforts and the delights of heaven. And all of a sudden, in an unfathomable inexplicable act of divine love, he has forever united himself to sinful humanity by taking on, not temporarily, but forever human flesh. He became one of us. He gave up the comforts of heaven for the pain of earth. He walked in our shoes. He breathed our air. He experienced our joy. He experienced our suffering. He stood in our place to receive our punishment on the cross so that you, why? So that you and I can be united with him forever. He traveled an infinite distance. He paid an ultimate price for you and for me. And get the picture, these heavenly beings who've had a front row seat for all of it are overwhelmed. They, they see redemption. They, they see what Jesus gave up to be united to humanity. They, they see the price that was paid. And all they can do is fall on their face and say, you are worthy. You are worthy. Oh, my God, if we could see this. Oh, if God would just help us see this, if we could just see what Jesus paid for us, what he's done for us, and that he holds history in his hand, I think we would join them. If we saw what they saw, I think we'd fall on our face. And we'd sing this song. There's a lot of songs out there that the world's singing right now. There's a lot of narratives out there. But I think if we saw Jesus as he really is, holding history in his hand, we would fall on our face and we'd be singing this song. I read not long ago, there was a medieval Franciscan teacher named Bonaventure, known as Saint Bonaventure. On one occasion... Uh, one of his students asked him, why don't more men love God? You know what Bonaventure's answer was? Love this. He said, they don't love him because they don't know him. Because if you know him, if you see what John saw, if you see that, if God by his Holy Spirit this morning will give you a picture of this, Jesus in this authority, Jesus going this infinite distance for you because he loves you and, and having the supreme authority, the supreme love, if you see that, you'll love him. A number of years ago, it was 2014, I was in uh, the West Bank with uh, a, a team from our church, adults and teenagers. 
And on one occasion, we were staying in Bethlehem, and we're coming up to a time of the year where we remember Bethlehem and we think about Bethlehem. Um, and we're in Bethlehem, and on one night, our team was going to go pray over the city of Bethlehem. And it was dark, and uh, the way, Beth- I don't know if you've ever been to Bethlehem, but there's like, it's like on the side of this, almost like it's a hilly place, and it's kind of built on the side of this, and you can see for a long way. Um, and so we were going to go up onto the top floor, I think it was maybe the sixth floor of this building. Somebody's going to let us in, get on the top, and we're just going to pray out over all of Bethlehem. But the guy who was letting us in said, uh, sure, I'll let you do that, but I want to talk to you first. I'm going to address your group. And, and I thought, you know, okay, so this is going to be one of those um, talks where they tell us all about the Palestinian situation and all of that. And so I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll listen and everything. Uh, but as soon as he started talking through the translator, I instantly knew I had totally misread this guy because he began to tell us his story. And as he told us his story, I could feel just the presence of God on, on that roof in Bethlehem that night. And his story was that he had been a member of Hamas. And one night he was praying, and, and he asked God, would you reveal yourself to me? And when he prayed that, the door flew open, and a man in white walked in. Now, I had heard these stories about a man in white appearing to Muslims, and I had begun to believe that maybe they were just urban legend, because I had never actually met anybody who had experienced this, and I never actually uh, talked to any missionary who knew somebody that this had happened to. I just heard about it. But this guy said, this is what happened. He falls on his face and says, who are you? And it's like out of the book of Acts, right? Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he becomes a believer, of course. And he tells us that night on this roof in Bethlehem that he stayed a member of Hamas so he can tell Hamas about Jesus. And then one of the youth in our group, who was very insightful, raised her her hand and asked the question, True through the translator, um, isn't that kind of dangerous? And he said, not drawing attention to himself, not saying glorify me, not, not feel sorry for me, nothing. He just said, I'm probably going to die for my faith. And then he said something I will never forget as long as I live. He said, but if you saw what I saw, you wouldn't even ask the question. And then he said, will you pray for me? I said, no way, man. You pray for me. I did pray for him. Don't anybody get offended. I I prayed for him. But I want him to pray because I want to experience Jesus like that. I want to see Jesus like that because if you see Jesus like that, you're going to say you are. You're going to fall on your face and say you are worthy. And it's going to change how you see everything else in this world. That's the first thing you got to see. See, a lot of times, all we see is the problem. We don't see Jesus. But look at the second thing in this, in this text. Notice the way this lion lamb overcomes. Did you notice it when we read through it? The way he overcomes is he was slain. He overcame through, in, in, in a phrase sacrificial love the lion king overcomes through sacrificial love the lion overcomes as a lamb and please notice this is the way that we overcome as well this is the way to victory in your life and mine in our family in our marriage in our relationships at work at school it's not winning an argument 
That, that's, it's not beating down the opposition. That's not the way we win. We overcome through sacrificial love. Revelation 12, just a few chapters later, verse 11, speaking prophetically, it says, They overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Sacrificial, the blood of Jesus, their testimony, and sacrificial love. And no matter what happens in our world, that's the way we overcome. That's the way we overcome. Sacrificial love. And that leads to scene four and the last one, I promise. It's this, a universal song. That's where we go. We started with a scene that was a throne and a scroll. Then we had a triumphant lion. Then we had a, a lamb that was slain but was standing. And scene four is a universal song. Look at verse 11. And then I saw. And NIV says, then I looked. And heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard, Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. and The elders are always falling down in the book of Revelation. To worship. Now, let this picture in, okay? Let, don't, don't just read it too quickly. There's a, there's a ripple effect that happens with this song of worship to this lion lamb, right? It, it, it's like, a, have you ever been to a sporting events where there's a wave that goes around? I mean, during COVID, we don't have, you know, enough people at these sporting events to do a wave. But before, we would be a lot of people, and you'd do the wave, people stand up, and there goes, a wave goes around. That's kind of what is happening here, because it, it, it starts around the throne, and then it's all of heaven, and then it goes to the entire universe because he says every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, and everything in them, meaning the entire universe joins in the song. Now here is the invitation. Here's the invitation. This is why John wrote this when he did. Remember, Domitian's in charge culturally. That's what's going on in the world. And he writes this song. Why? Because he's inviting you to join the song of heaven. Not just the people who lived under Domitian. He's inviting you and I right now on this day to join the song of heaven. And the song is this, Jesus, you're worthy. You're in control here. He's worthy to take the scroll. History, which is history. History is in his hand, which means we have absolutely no reason to fear. Why? He rules. He reigns. He's king. Jesus is Lord. And the truth is, a lot of us talk about the fact that we sing this song, but in reality, we sing another. In fact, if you want to know what song you're really singing, let me, let me just give you some diagnostic questions here. Number one, what is it that captures your imagination? Like, what has captured your imagination lately? Is it Jesus? Is it the fact that he holds history in his hand? Is it a picture of Jesus? And Jesus, you are worthy. Is that capturing your imagination these days, or is it something else? What dominates, here's the second question, what dominates your conversation? 
Like, are you constantly talking about Jesus? Like, you can't talk about Jesus enough, man. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is worthy. Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We've been redeemed. We've been, we're a king. We're priests and, and we're going to write. Is that what is dominating your conversation? Is that what you talk about? Or is it like politics or, or, or sports or, or whatever else? I mean, what, what shades your internal life, your, your interior life? I mean, is it, is it doom and gloom or is it this kind of abiding joy? It doesn't mean you have to be giggly all the time. <laughs> okay, you're, you know, you're not like that all the time. But there should be this abiding joy. Why? Because we're singing this song. Domitian might look like he's in charge out there, but the reality is Jesus is worthy and he's got the scroll in his hand. And you'll notice that as the song increases, more people begin to sing it until all of creation is singing it. And see, we, we've come this far now, and, we, and, and now uh, the name of Jesus, where we are in history, commands the allegiance of about a third of the people on the planet. And as impressive as that is, there's coming a day, it's not going to be one-third. There's coming a day, it's going to be 100%. Because there's coming a day, John says, where every creature is going to sing this song. Paul puts it this way, Philippians 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. And because that day is coming, on this day, when it looks like Domitian is in charge. This day, when it feels like evil is winning, when it looks like there's nobody worthy to take the scroll and it feels like the purposes of God are not being done in our land uh, because of that day coming on this day, you know what we stand and say? Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and you've got history in your hand. So the answer to the question Who's in control here? Is the lamb who was slain, who is now the lion who reigns. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to just right now speak this truth uh, into you in whatever way you need it. Because I know that people watching this, people in this room now, but people watching this all over the place, all over the world maybe, are in different contexts and different situations, and, and you need the Holy Spirit to apply this to your life for where you are. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to do that. To translate this message of Jesus. And Lord, I ask that just in these next few seconds here, Lord, that we that you would give us all a picture that our eyes would be fastened on the throne and we would see the Lamb who was slain, who is risen, and who rules and reigns. Lord, let us see you more nearly as you really are. And so, Lord, I, I just, I now relinquish and release any, any other pictures that we're focusing on. Lord, any other songs that we've been singing. We want to sing this song. You are worthy receive all glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever.
Lord, we just, just as a people, we receive from you now just an infusion of hope. Just an infusion of hope because we see Jesus as he really is. Lord, Lord, or more nearly as he really is. Lord, I know that we, we can ne- our brains can never get wrapped around your glory and your splendor and your majesty, but we can see a little bit more than we see right now. So I pray that in every situation, Lord, that those who are controlled by fear would no longer be controlled by fear. Those, Lord, who, um, Lord, are disappointed or have taken offense or, or whatever it is, Lord, all of whatever it is that's not of you that we're carrying right now, we just release it to you right now. As we see you for who you are. Now just take a second and just focus your mind's eye on the Lord. Let him speak to you. as we're dismissed today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.